Hey everybody, it's Ian King. I'm here with a number of my top level coaches. We've got a question from a KSI client. It's a great question. Uh, he's a great man, deserves an answer. So what I do is I thought I'd take the opportunity when I'm talking with my coaches to get their thoughts on the answer for him. So let's let's hear his question. And this is how it went. So Ian, I'm a big bodybuilding fan of the past and present. However, I do feel the bodybuilders from the past look far better than they do now. I am a natural bodybuilder with the aim of building muscle and minimising fat, which I do via diet. My all-time favourite bodybuilders are Sergio Bray and Frank Zane, who both have very small waists but wide chests and back. I know a lot of the industry, inverted commas, experts, if you'd call them that, say that it's totally down to genetic that they had such tiny waists and large chests. However, for me, this isn't a good answer, and I still would like to continue to find a way to narrow my waistline to have that really great-looking narrow waist. I've read some excellent things about your work and you are considered by many to be the world's most knowledgeable coach on most topics, so I decided to ask you this question. When trying to narrow my waist and create a nice balanced mix section, what exercises would you recommend for the narrowing of the waistline as well as keeping it tight and flat? I realise that you could probably fill a 300-page book on ab training, however, I thought I would ask. I realise you're busy, so if you don't have the time, etc., etc., so that's the question. As I said, it's a, it's a, a great question. Uh, it's been asked in a very respectful and courteous manner, and I, I always respond to people who show those qualities. So, so I'm going to draw some key points out from that while my coaches are thinking about their response. He's obviously keen to improve his aesthetics, I'm assuming, which is not just uh, the measurements but the the look. And... His primary focus has been on what exercises. So the primary question is, is aimed at what exercises. However, I think we can broaden. Um, he said, "What exercises to, to do to narrow the waistline and keep it tight and flat, etc." But I think we can probably broaden our answers to be a little bit more holistic than that. And I'm pretty sure as our discussion goes on, we'll we'll end up with some fantastic dialogue on this subject, which will be of great value to not only to the writer but to anyone listening to this audio. Okay, so this is going to be a pretty open discussion with our coaches. Uh, so I'm going to just see who wants to go first. I want one of you to open the dialogue for me in response to this writer's questions. Uh, coaches, who's first? I can start. Thank you, John. So I don't believe there is an actual group of exercises that you can do and then your waist gets narrower but he can definitely build up his chest um, get a bigger chest and he can also create the illusion of a smaller waist by you know getting a bigger chest back and shoulders and getting more of a sweep on his quads so but as far, I mean, like he, what he, like what he said at the end. I'm sure you could write, or uh, let's see, where did he say that about the about the ab training? 300 page book on ab training. However, I thought I like it's kind of like he wants us to answer him. Like there's a secret ab exercise he could do to do that, but I don't really believe that there is. I mean, once you lose all your body fat, that's where you that's what you get that's how small your waist is once all the body fat comes off like as far as if you're pre-contest you know so but as far as like a specific exercise to get your waist smaller i i don't believe there is one 
Okay, that's a great start, and I appreciate that, John. So John's raised two points. He's given his, his thoughts on as far as any, any magic exercises, but also starting to talk about creating the, the visual perception of the ratio between um, the chest, the waist, and the legs, which has had a long... There's a lot of history there, and we can talk about that. But I think there's probably a few extra things that we can, we can also um, help our, reader, our writer with in this question. There's a few things I'd like to add. Um, before I do that, uh, I just want to open the floor up to any other coach who would like to, to start with their introductory thoughts on this subject. Fantastic. Hi, Mitchell, go ahead. And... I'll just, I'll, I've got a few points, but I'll just leave one. I'll put one out there. Is the position of the, the, the pelvis um, relative to the rest of the body. If you look at traditional bodybuilding, uh, particularly North American strength training in general, you'll often see the, the, um, the shortness in the in the quad dominant muscles and a larger lordosis in the back and that can um, often uh, have an impact on the size of the waist or the perception of the of a bulge of the waist or um, anything like that so sometimes when the pelvis in a more neutral position in a, in a, in a better position that can also impact um, the visual appearance of the waistline now keeping in mind what John said about body fat etc that obviously has a, a bigger overall implication however in the early stages just um, having the bones in appropriate positions can also have a, a visual impact for others to see. That's a very important point now, and, and I do want you to add some of the other thoughts if you've got time to share with them and, and of course you're talking about Mitchell the, the quad dominant uh, in, the, in the concept that I introduced um, publicly in the 90s uh, the lines of movement concept aren't you the quad dominant um, hip dominant um, that's just to clarify for our listeners um, that we're talking about my original concepts here, Mitchell. Yes, exactly. And the, and the over and the overdone and the in strength in strength training sports, the overdoneness, I guess you can say, or overtraining of the of the quad and shortening of the front of those tissues, which in, in turn obviously has a, a, an a inappropriate pelvic tilt pull and change in the hip position. Excellent. So. Despite that teaching, or perhaps because it was um, taught by so many who, with no genuine intent to understand it or share it with the right manner, but other, rather than they share it for the purpose of uh, getting a few more books published and making themselves look more, more of exports, it, we don't seem to have made that much of a difference in, in that the, the, the world is still dominated by quad dominance. Um, you know, if, as I travel the world, the same, same patterns I see now occurred 30 years ago, which is... Uh, people lead the, the exercise with the squat and similar quad dominant exercise. People lead their exercise with the bench press and similar horizontal pushing movements. So there's imbalances there. And the impact of an anteriorly positioned pelvis on visual appearance of the waist is significant. Um, so that's one definitely strong strategy. And I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm glad Mitchell raised that. I think that's a, a massive one. I, I know personally with my early lifting, I've paid the price in that. Not that visuals are a huge issue for me. But I, I definitely know uh, personally, firsthand, the impact of, of that imbalance. So, Mitchell, did you have any else, um, any other gems on along those lines? Well, from my my background is not in bodybuilding. My background is the preparation of athletes. But I've also seen over the years a, a lot of exercises that are done um, over time can impact the, making the, the the midsection thicker. Um, a lot of the times, so versus um, perhaps some more bodybuilding kind of movements that, are, that may not have the impact on the thickness of the trunk or of, of muscles of the waist and all the attachments around there, etc. So um, um, I've seen over the years, um, yeah, people get very thick 
through the through the all the tissues that attach around the the waist, and that can also have an impact um, on the visual appearance. So take that for what you want. No, that's that is a very very important point, and one I would have raised if you hadn't raised. Um, even though we are talking about an anecdotal, uh, I speak personally just in support of that anecdotal comment that there is the, the, the risk of for a, a bodybuilder who has a challenge, if they, if in, their, in their mind at least, in the, the ratio of the chest to, to the waist and, the, and their, their waist to their legs, etc. Uh, so in other words, if they're struggling with a thin waist department or want to have a thinner waist, the challenge with engaging in, in a lot of more powerlifting type loading on powerlifting type program design is a potential thickening throughout the midsection and I, I, I do support that um, theory. So that's something to be mindful of, which is it's a tough balance because I, I believe the, the powerlifting approach does provide incredible muscle depth and density, muscle maturity uh, to the physique. So it's going to be a, a very fine balance, but I'd be pretty confident to say that uh, some of the examples that he was referring to probably didn't engage in, in uh, a lot of maximum load powerlifts. Um, uh, and then we can talk about the belt, which I'm sure we'll come back to later. So uh, uh, without knowing as much as others may about uh, Serge Newbrays and Frank Zane's training methods, I suspect that they may not have engaged in long-term uh, maximum load through the squat um, and the deadlift in particular. So uh, I think the involvement of the powerlifting approach for a bodybuilder in this condition is something that would require significant reflection as to how much and when to include that. So another fantastic point from Mitchell. So I know Mitchell's got at least one more, um, but we'll let him um, add that now if you wanted to or come back with us in a minute when someone else has contributed. So back to the the effect of the muscles in the body, there'll be a few that could also be exploited. So the the thickness and the size of the of the quads will often help the the waist appear smaller and again from multiple angles. So if you build the depth, especially in the hamstring and the gluteal from the side profile, that can make the, the, the waist appear smaller and then the same from the the front on the deltoids and the lat increasing that, that width, getting that sort of barn door and that's a point that John was spoke to and, and I think that's a really important point so this is not addressing the question of what exercise to do to McDonald's this is now addressing what, what other approach it's going to take in my overall training to create the, the, the ratio uh, or the illusion of a smaller waist relative to the shoulders and legs so you talked about depth um, in the hamstrings and and, and, and in the quads as well. I just want to clarify that with you, Carl. Yeah, depth in the hamstrings, the quads, and then also um, bringing up the gluteals. Often they they seem to get neglected as well, and that that will give the the whole appearance of the thinner waist. And then on the waist is a kind of separate topic, but more abdominal focus. In fact, then you would get Surgeon Bray and um, Frank Zane. They would hollow out so the thin tummy type drills to work on that hollowing that again make the waist look significantly smaller, which now you look at modern bodybuilders, modern bodybuilders it's, it's not done, whereas that definitely reduces the, uh, the abdominals and really magnifies the, the size of the, 
the legs, the chest, arms, etc. So definitely the thin tummy drills that you uh, go through with your materials. Right, well, is it, there's so many interesting points that you've raised there, and I know we had a chuckle in the background there from John. Um, and, and did you say something about juice in relation to the abdominals, or did I mishear you? I, I didn't. I, I was going to, and I, I decided not to. Well, we, we can go there because it's, you know, there's obviously a, a modern-day concern, which I think in a holistic discussion of creating the thin, uh, the, the appearance of the thin waist or, or creating the thin, thinner waist, etc., is relevant. So who wants to open on that one? Well, I, I, have, I have some more to add on to what Mitchell said about the, uh, the anterior pelvic tilt and the position of the pelvis kind of pushing that stomach out. And also what Carl said about the thin tummy drill is like, yeah, if you can suck your tummy thin, automatically you can make your waist look smaller. But people who have that anterior pelvic tilt, it's much harder for them to do that thin tummy drill. So, yeah, if they can fix that angle of the pelvis, they'll be able to perform the thin tummy drill better. And also, just from, like, a postural standpoint, if you, you know, build your back up and stretch your chest properly um, and, you know, build your back up through the... uh, upper body control drills and, you know, doing proper form on your uh, rowing movements. Uh, even if you didn't even build any chest at all, just getting your chest, you know, elevated from a postural standpoint, it's going to look bigger and make your waist look smaller. There's, there's some fantastic points in there, John. There's, there's one I want to draw attention to right there now, and that's the application of the thin tummy during the squat because that's a, a, a technique that, I, that I've taught originally. But just to give an insight into the degree of public um, that it's not been a popularly received one is that the, the, the world's greatest plagiarizer, when verbatim copying from my work has always uh, removed two lines from my squat description. So they've been happy that the, that the world will think they're an expert if they use my squat description, but they've taken out the two, which I, I appreciate that they feel that they might be alienating their readership who they've been able to con into thinking that they know what they're talking about by removing the reference to, to, to the way I set the pelvis in the squat. Um, and, and in fact, the whole set the pelvis in the squat technique that I teach has, has been just another opportunity for people to throw darts, which is fantastic. Uh, I, I don't have a problem with people having a different opinion. But what you're saying to me is that if people don't exploit... Or let's go the other way. If people are exclusively, as a bodybuilder and a thin waist, as a goal, were pushing out against a belt, and that's why I had belt down to talk to about later, or were failing to control their pelvis during the squat and deadlift position, they'd have no hope of optimising the thin, the thin tummy appearance and, and, and optimising their ratios. John, were you, were you happy with that? Yeah, they're just in. They're just further ingraining that pattern in their lifting. So yeah, they're just they're they're, they're making themselves weaker with that inability to suck their tummy thin. So we know that they're affecting their nervous supply. That, that's something that'll be that'll be popularised in the decades to come by some trend spotter. Um, but in the short term, they're definitely uh, we're, we're all saying they're affecting their visuals by not taking that opportunity to reset their pelvic position. Um, and also relying on uh, creating an extension of the stomach in, in, in the, um, the action-reaction, the push, which is a legitimate powerlifting technique. There's no question about it. But if you want to get the perception of a bulged stomach, go ahead and let go of your abdominals while you squat or go ahead and push against the belt. You're going to lift more, but if you're concerned about your visuals, 
you, you probably may as well just go and shoot yourself in the foot because that's all you're doing. So very briefly, we won't dwell on this because obviously with the athletes we train, this is not an issue, but there's obviously a, 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 a more modern, and I say modern, the last 10, 20, 30 years, whatever, depending upon which, which um, perception of history you read there, where uh, a more popular use of certain substances can result in an enlarged abdominal um, and specifically here we're refer- referring to growth hormone, I would imagine, and that alone is something that anyone with a thin tummy requirement w- wanting to make the abdominal look thin would have to be very conscious of. Fair comment? Yeah, definitely, very fair comment. So, if you look at now, if you look at the professionals, I don't think you'd have one who would you know, vacuum at all. It's all that growth hormone bloke. And that, exactly. So for, for uh, the rider who says he's a natural bodybuilder, that's something that obviously that won't be an issue, but that's something to be mindful of. So in addition to uh, controlling the pelvis through the way we teach the squat and deadlift, there's also the benefit of teaching the thin tummy drill in the way I teach it, which is unique. Um, it's not the way that some of the researchers um, out of the original research have taught. It was a slight, slight variation on that, which I think is more effective. Um, I teach it in my video, etc., on on um, control drills or abdominals, abdominal exercises. My apologies. So, uh, to help, uh, and this is where John, I'd probably take a slightly different approach to you on your earlier comment, where I believe that if someone was to spend a lot more time uh, in doing and mastering the thin tummy drill as I teach it, I think that I think that is an exercise that can specifically give you a thinner waist. What do you reckon? I mean, when it comes, when they lose the body fat, like, it, I guess they could, they they would get a stronger, they would get stronger abdominals and be able to suck their tummy in thinner. They position their pelvis more more optimally, which we, I guess is what I'm saying. So w- without that thin tummy ability, without that corset strength that we teach in the thin tummy, then then they, their pelvis would be more anterior tilted. So in, in two identical cases where the body fat's the same, as low as it's going to get, I, I, whilst the diameter was not necessarily going to be different, the uh, the angle of the pelvis. Um, well, I, I still think the, the the diameter of the waist may actually be broader, uh, larger, even though you know the the width of the pelvis is unchanged. So, I, 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 I still stay with that position, John. That mastering the thin tummy drill as we teach it would potentially give them a smaller circumference. Controversial, eh, John? Yeah. Fantastic. That is good. So, there's another strategy that we haven't talked about um, and a bit was hinted at, and that's the hollowing drill. And, and this is probably a concept that's been lost a little bit uh, in, in any, uh, you know, it's probably not popular enough for the usual trend spotters to write about. And the book's written by people who don't actually train. Uh, and and don't have pictures of their bodies because they couldn't. The does anyone know what I'm alluding to? Where where the rehearsal? I know I'm speaking with uh, John Park, Reg Park's son, the late Reg Park, one of the greatest bodybuilders in in the last hundred years. And to for us, who is a you know, I believe is probably one of the most classic physiques. So the judges of Mr. Universe on at least three occasions, although there were another two that they probably. Um, could have been debated where he didn't win it uh, it was runner-up but that's a different story the the actual exercise of 
um, almost like a posing drill of, of holding the stomach in, and that's the exercise. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that's why I was chuckling yeah. when Paro made that comment because I actually have two Facebook posts of um, the hollowing pose and the rope pose. Sensational. And that's that's um, that's something that you have to practice when you do your posing. You're, you're constantly hollowing. Which is, which is the foundation of the thin tummy drill, the way we teach it. So, yeah. And so from speaking with people who have connections back to bodybuilding methods of the, you know, the mid-1900s, that probably has lost, its, lost uh, the, the awareness of that drill. The world's lost awareness and definitely the popularity in that drill. So that's another strategy that I believe that's on the table for someone like the writer here in this instance. I do want to come back and spend a little bit more time talking about the width, width of um, the width of the body in, in, in creating that perception of, of, of shoulder ratio, uh, not just chest but shoulder ratio. Um, uh, and, and waist uh, to the waist. Let's just address the top end uh, to start with. So, Carl, do you want to get more specific about how that could be best best addressed, or at least some suggestions? Because I, I think the width. My position is that the width is something you can specifically target. So how would you go about that, Carl? Definitely. So it depends on what training they've been doing more specifically. So you can see what they haven't been doing and, and utilise that to support the fact that they haven't had any exposure to it. But definitely a lot of work focused on the delt. So if the pressing definitely has a, a role with the mass, but then the isolation of the delt definitely um, would pay a dividend there. So, as soon as you build those up, whether it's a you know, bodybuilder, um, female, or multimeter weight, but small, as soon as you add that, that mass to the delts, it makes a significant difference to the weight. So, uh, a lot of shoulder work, so whether you know, lateral raises, pressing in front and behind, front delt raises, etc. So, a whole host of many. So, but I'd be going to what they haven't been doing. So, have a look at what they've been doing in the program and also the sequencing of the program. And I definitely put that as a priority. So earlier in the week and earlier in the session to really exploit the shelf footers. Excellent, excellent. Now, before I add to that, if anyone else wanted to add to that concept, that's a great summary, and I've got a few things to add. Yeah, I mean, I would add to that, but um, can we talk about another body part too? Yeah, we, 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 we want to finish on the shoulders, and then we will go to another body part. Okay. Um, yeah, well, basically... Whew. With um, with people's programs, like, and this is just from my experience and what I've heard talking to, you know, 99.9% of the people and one of them perform their movements is that, you know, when they squat, they're typically doing a wide stance, low bar, feet turned out, wide grip, hip-breaking squat. So, um if you just have them switch that up in every possible manner and they can get a more, uh, a better sweep on their quads as far as like uh, their fastest lateralis goes. Fine, I would just flip, flip their squat program around and uh, have them try it the other way for a little bit and see if that works. So what we're talking about is, is the ability or the option to shape the, the muscle based upon the line of the load. So instead of, in this case, going wide 
and with external rotation coming in with a narrow stance, straightening the feet up and the changing shape from the training. And this is where I think there is so much potential in strength training from a, from a physique perspective to shape the body. And because it's... Um, I think it's probably been uh, snowed under or suppressed a little bit under t- for two reasons. One, people are so load-focused that they'll use whatever position allows them to lift the most weight, which is great if you're a, a powerlifter, uh, at least in a specific preparatory phase, but not necessarily in the general preparatory phase. But from, a, from the perspective of um, the other influence, I think that suppressing this discussion is, is, is the, the desire to be limited by established research so you know i'm just not sure whether established research is up to this level of being able to quantify the impact on the the shape by the line of the load so i think that's a really valid point john and i think it's a fantastic point uh, as far as the lower body shaping the lower body to impact the ratio through to the waist i have got one extra point to add about the shoulders so before we leave the shoulders Okay, I got another quad point too. Well, let's do the quad point and I'll come back to the shoulders. Okay, well, also, it's true that people are load-focused, but also they just can't even get in that position or can't even get the desired depth because they're so tight because they aren't flexible enough to physically be able to squat correctly. So they're kind of just like... um, going to that wider stance because that's the only way they can open up the hips to get that depth because they're you know uh whew, their their quads and their hip flexors are just too tight or calves or soleuses or you they're just not flexible enough to even get into the proper position to get the benefit of the squat so they revert to that power lifting excellent point excellent, excellent. and uh, that that also supports what we're talking about uh, with the length of the hip flexors and the and anterior pelvis rotation because it's just not something where you know doing a thin tummy drill is going to set your pelvis up. You actually have to lengthen your hip flexors. Now, what John's referring to is total body flexibility, and I know John that since you um, what over the last five years have started embracing my teachings, that your flexibility has changed significantly. And I, w- I would imagine that you can speak firsthand as to how that's impacted your ability to use technique of choice as opposed to uh, having no yep. choice where your body went. Yeah, yeah, big time. Flexibility has improved and my options are s- so much, you know, greater now. And it's um, improved my physique and the whole concept or discussion of flexibility is an interesting one because I understand that as a pioneer of training methods, and that's what I've been for the last 30-plus years, I've always said, listen, there's a better way. I'll find that better way, and I do it. I confirm it in the real world. I teach it in, in, in some circumstances. And obviously it's, it's always a new thing, and then people are threatened because it's not what they're doing. Uh, so they, they attack it. And I've been through that cycle so many times, and then they turn around when they feel comfortable with it. The, the people who attack me for it teach it. Um, become market leaders, they're incredible, they're gurus, they're experts, etc. This is a cycle that we go through continuously. So in, in relation to flexibility, I've been teaching that consistently for 30-plus years. 
Um, you know, we make incredible changes in athlete performance and, and, and physique, as John alluded to there. Uh, and yet, it's one of those ones where the resistance is still up. I mean, some of the trend spotters are starting to see the uh, the tipping point. Some of the trend spotters, are, you know, the people who don't actually train and kind of coach but write about it, they're, they're starting to say, well, I think we should do it now. Um, but I, I still think we're a long way away from the world embracing it for a number of reasons, not only because the people who control information in the marketplace won't, won't want it released because it makes them look silly, but also because it does take time and it does take an effort and it doesn't really fit the instant paradigm because, you know, we, what was a 40-minute workout being popularised before was now, you know, became a, a four-minute workout and it'll be a 40-second workout and, and the people will be marketing a four-second workout shortly and there'll be four nanoseconds. Um, and whatever what is, is a subfraction or, or one decimal point below a nanosecond it'll be the you know there'll be the marketed concept of the future um, you know when people say we did a stretching session it took five minutes we just roll over laughing because we can think well we might get my right calf done in that time so there are a number of reasons why um, flexibility is is one of my uh, favorite topics that have not been uh, fully embraced by the market yet but the bottom line is if people aren't prepared to pay their dues in the flexibility department they're never going to master their physique. They're never going to fulfil their physique potential, I think is what um, John was supporting me on. Yep. So coming back to the, the shoulder press, I uh, just want to touch very briefly on that. This is a good example also supporting the, the flexibility su- subject we talked about where I'm a big fan of the press one in the neck. And the press one in the neck was really um, a, a, an entrenched exercise in the old world of bodybuilding but uh, I've, I've just come to accept the resistance to it in the in the newer world of bodybuilding and it's simply a flexibility issue people can't press a bar behind the head um, and that's not okay that's an indication that you are about to blow your shoulders out you're going to have shoulder pain you're going to have uh, pain you know the, you're going to pain that limits your bench press you're going to, see you're going to have shoulder pain referred pain down the arm etc it's it's a recipe for disaster so the inability to press from behind the neck, back of the neck safely and pain-free is another indication you're not going to fulfil your, your width potential because I believe that, that the, the pure vertical line has far more potential on width creation than a press from the front. And I, I know a number of people who've popularised the front squat and the front press, etc. and for most part they can't touch their toes and they're so inflexible because they've, they've eschewed, they've pushed away flexibility as, a, as an option in training. So... Firstly, I'm a big fan of behind-the-neck press. I think that's going to make a, a, a big difference to your width. Uh, and I, I know um, Carl was uh, talking about there, you know, loading uh, versus isolation exercises, so I won't go into that too much. But one of the things I think contributes to width in, in terms of the, the angle at which the loading occurs at is a wide grip. So if you can wide grip bar, so wide grip press behind the neck, I think you'll even get a greater potential contribution to your, to your width. Uh, I just believe that the the placement of loading and where it stays throughout the lift ha- offers something that many um, unilateral movements don't. Uh, it's you just keep the loading further away from the body for longer during the arc of the movement, where where many isolation movements don't. The, the, the arc brings it closer in line to the centre line of the body. So just a, it's sort of a little bit more of a high level thought but almost a redundant discussion because the majority of people who, who lift these days are so inflexible that uh, the concept of pressing behind the neck is foreign, uh, safely anyway, and the concept of wide grip pressing is like, um, you know, is just about, forget about stuff. So, has anyone else got additional points to add to help our writer in his question about how to improve his 
thin tummy or make his tummy thinner or uh, what exercise to do or what strategies to implement to give that perception? I do, Ian. Uh, Go ahead, Ryan. And, uh, I don't know, I'm a large bodybuilding but uh, I believe the just having a, a system, so a, a model of where you want to be and, and understanding what's your posture model and understanding how to do these exercises uh, work. So each exercise, how is it affecting my body uh, and flexibility and tying it all together, and that's what the KSI uh, is all about, is having that model of where is everything fit into the equation. So understanding how is this breaking down in my um, workout plan for the week, for the day, for the month, uh, just fit it, fit that all together and have that understanding about, and that really ties everything in that, that you were all talking about today. I think that's a fantastic point, especially in summarising our chat today. And that's one thing that, that if you're willing to learn the cause-effect relationships of what you're doing to your body, that can really serve you long term, not only with your physique but with your health, your joint health, etc. And that is an opportunity that strength training does provide. There's an opportunity to individualise your training program, uh, to manipulate the variables, exercise selection, sequence, load, etc., to optimise your outcomes. If you understand that, and, and obviously if you're in a group exercise session, like uh, for example a CrossFit class, you, you, you wouldn't have that opportunity. But if you're, you're making decisions about your own training program, then your ability to optimise your training program is only limited by your understanding of the individual variables. And as I've, I've written about in the past and, and made mention of, there aren't too many people in the world that can actually individualise training. So if you're an end user like the writer is here, I would encourage you to become somewhat of your own expert because I don't have high hopes of you finding anyone in the industry who is necessarily going to be as committed about learning about you as an individual and being able to program you as an individual. So uh, I think it's very appropriate, and that's one of the many reasons I provide and have provided the Get Buffed education for, uh, what, 15, 15 years now that we've been running the Get Buffed series because we, we're committed to helping anybody who trains improve their ability to control the outcome of their training. And we do that through education, and before we educate, we have to have mastery ourselves. We have to, to have tested the methods and, and shown them to be solid under our own objective analysis before we write about it, which is, again, another thing that makes us unique. We don't write about it because someone else wrote about it, and we definitely don't use other people's material. Um, so the Get Buff series is aimed at helping you make better decisions to fulfil your potential, and I guess that's what we've become known for in the marketplace as well. So... I appreciate the input from all the coaches, and I know. Yes. Yeah, I think we've got another point before we wrap. Sorry, just a general comment. Yes, Mike. Uh, I'm being a little bit sarcastic here, but um, what we're what we're talking about here essentially is um, is almost heresy according to current dominant thinking. Because you'd have to change an awful lot. And to receive that individualized programming, you'd actually have to be a person that would think, that would have the ability to think differently, or to actually accept um, accept advice or accept guidance yes. that may be different from the dominant trend. Yes. So first you'd have to be that person to actually be able to take on that kind of guidance and actually act on it. Not just listen to it and nod your head, but actually do something with it. And that's... Uh, a really good point to, as we draw to the conclusion on this little chat it's a really powerful point that we acknowledge up front 
that we lead the world in, in athlete preparation and physical preparation. There's no question about that. Uh, the, we also understand that, that um, pioneers get shot, uh, is the saying. Um, so not, 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 not a lot of fun when you've always got arrows in your back. Uh, but the irony for me is that the same people who are shooting arrows in a, into our back are the same people who within a very short period of time will turn around uh, and teach it themselves as, as if it was their own and that at some point in time everything I teach will become mainstream. And I say that based upon observations over the last 30 plus years, uh, both the way the trend spotters have, have uh, felt challenged and, 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 and attacked criticised, uh, claimed it's uh, really bad, it's awful, etc., and then turned around and taught it. There's some great walking examples of them in the world today and the way that the world embraces the material once it hits that tipping point where the, the, the 95% of the population who need to know that someone else is doing it before they're willing to do it. Uh, when it hits that tipping point and everybody starts doing it because everyone else is doing it, so everything we teach will ultimately come to pass, whether or not in your lifetime, who knows, but my attitude is why wait? I certainly don't believe in waiting. Uh, I have an athlete in front of me. They have a limited window of opportunity to fulfil their potential, to create great memories for themselves, to create a legacy from their life, especially during their youth in terms of elite uh, Olympic sport. And I'm certainly not going to wait uh, till the masses are doing it or till researchers confirm it. So I guess we need to throw that disclaimer in that, that yeah, we understand nobody else is doing what we're telling you to do. So we, we, we won't be too concerned or surprised if you throw it out. But if you're one of those few people that do actually want to fulfil your potential and are willing to think for yourselves, there's massive opportunity within our educational program for you. And we've had the opportunity today and the honour today of having a half a dozen of my top coaches from around the world on the, on the call today to address our riders' questions. So I, I really appreciate that, coaches, and I know the rider will. I know everyone else who gets to listen to this audio will do, and who knows, it might stimulate further questions of, of similar value and integrity posed with, with honesty and courtesy that would motivate us to provide such a, a public answer. So thanks, coaches. We'll talk shortly.